This Motley Fool podcast is brought to you by Pearl Auto, which makes wireless rearview cameras for your car that retrofit around your license plate and sync with your smartphone so you can drive more safely. Check it out at pearlauto.com slash fool and get free two-day shipping applied at checkout. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's October 5th. My name is Christine Hargis, and I have Motley Fool Healthcare contributor Todd Campbell on the line. How are you, Todd? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm getting all excited, right? We're Halloween right around the corner. I can't believe it's already October. Feels like it, though. <laughs> yeah, it's getting kind of chilly. Yeah, I like it, though. <laughs> this is my kind of weather. Anywho, so... Good sleeping weather. That's true, too. It's always good sleeping weather, though. (laughs) Um, So, we have two topics today to cover. They really don't have anything in common. I was trying to think of a way to tie them to each other, and they're just different. Uh, The one that we'll get to later in the show is about medical marijuana and some updates there. But the first thing that we wanted to talk about was Medtronic, who had some exciting news recently. Well, they, if we want to try and find a, a common thread, they both start with the letter M, right? So. They actually both start with med, if you say medical marijuana. And I, I thought of that, and I was like, oh, that's great. But then I can't use that, because we're the healthcare show. Everything starts with med. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, M&M, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the Medtronic news is potentially, I mean, it's potentially game-changing. This is something that diabetics have been looking for for more than a decade. And what we're talking about is the approval of the first so-called artificial pancreas, or basically a system that will do uh, more naturally or more automatically uh, the job of evaluating a a patient's blood sugar, uh, delivering insulin as necessary to that patient. Right, and the reason that it's called an artificial pancreas is because your pancreas normally produces all the enzymes and the hormones that break down food. One of these is insulin, which is in most people secreted into the bloodstream to help regulate your blood glucose levels. But if you're a type 1 diabetic, you have little or no insulin production from your pancreas. Right, we're talking a very about a small subset of the of the total diabetes population, I think. A lot of times when people think about diabetes, they think about late onset um, diabetes that occurs later in life. We're actually talking about uh, juvenile diabetes or early onset diabetes. And in these patients, there's roughly 1.25 million of them here in the United States. Uh, Their pancreas, for for one reason or another, uh, just stops producing insulin at a very young age. And as a result, these patients are faced with a very high burden uh, throughout their entire life of evaluating their blood sugar, uh, taking insulin as necessary. And this is, uh, it's a serious disease. It um, can be life shortening if it's not treated and taken care of appropriately. Um, And unfortunately, because of the, up until now, uh, the drawbacks, the limited technology, um, many of these patients, or the majority of these patients, spend the majority of their day outside their desired blood sugar uh, ranges. And, and that's worrisome because that can lead to comorbidities, uh, things like heart disease, that can, um, that can pose big problems later on in life. So this is being viewed as a, as a significant advance in the treatment of type 1 diabetes. It's kind of surprising, Medtronic 
did file for approval and people were aware of the, the trial results evaluating this system. It's called the 670G for people who are keeping track at home. Um, so it wasn't a surprise that it got approved. It was a surprise that it was got approved as soon as it did. In fact, Medtronic hasn't even finished all of the uh, laying all of the groundwork to be able to start delivering these systems to patients. Um, they expect that they'll be able to do that beginning early next year. Right. It came six months ahead of schedule. And you mentioned that it wasn't really surprising that it was approved. And that makes sense if you look at some of the numbers from the trial. This uh, received approval after being tested on 123 patients. There were no complications reported of those patients. They were kept within their desired range 73.4% of the time. This is as compared to 67.8% who were not using the system. And this was actually even better at night, which is traditionally a very dangerous time. So, uh, to really emphasize what this means for the patient, I want to describe a little bit about how it actually works. So, this is the first closed loop system approved anywhere. And what that means is as opposed to an open loop in which you have your continuous glucose monitor and you also have a pump and there's no interaction, there's no automation there, this hybrid closed system means that the sensor and the infusion device can talk to each other. And so you get insulin pumped continuously when you need it, day and night, based on the data from the monitor, which is really, really cool and a tremendous boost in convenience for patients. It's very cool, but in patients and, and investors should both remember that this isn't a fully automated system. I mean, there are still uh, some things that patients are going to be responsible for. For example, setting up the system initially, um, the patient and the doctor are going to have to input information uh, about how your, your body um, uh, deals with um, uh, carbohydrates. Uh, and then prior to meals, you're going to actually have to tell the system, I'm about to eat, and these are how, this is the number of carbs uh, that I've been about to eat, so that it knows to adjust your insulin um, uh, to, that, to that specific pre-specified pre uh, level, if you will. Um, so, so it's not completely hands-off. Obviously, you know, the sensor, there's a sensor, that sensor is going to need to have to be changed every week. You have um, the pump itself for the insulin, you'll have to add insulin to that every three days or so. There's some recalibration that needs to get done. So it's not a fully automated, it's not really, that's why I call it a so-called artificial pancreas because there's still um, some human uh, activity that needs to be going on here. Um, but it, it, it could be a big advance because again, anything that you can do to keep your blood sugar within the desired range is a plus that could extend your life, right? So you know if you can take that 70% out of range and turn it into a, wow, now I'm in range the majority of time, potentially you're going to suffer from less health complications later on in life. And this is a big issue, especially for teens. You know, teenagers have a very hard time uh, traditionally sticking um, to the regimen, if you will, of making sure that they have the appropriate insulin dosage for what it is that they're eating. And, you know, while this device isn't approved yet for uh, kids under 14, it is for 14 and up. And that's about, you know, if you look at adults, there's about a million of the type 1 patients that are adults over 18, about 200,000 are, are below 18. So um, it, it'll serve a, a very large portion of this addressable population. 
And the device is also now being tested on ages 7 through 13, so that population could also look forward to being able to use it as well. Todd. Right. And it won't be, free. you know, I mean, we should probably also talk about, Christine, the fact that, you know, there is going to be a cost associated with us. That is exactly where I was about to go. Go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not going to be a free device. I mean, obviously, you know, patients are going to have to pay for it. Um, they're still ironing out all the details with payers. OK, so we don't know what the the your copayment or coinsurance may be for the device. But what Medtronic has said is that if you already own a prior generation device, um, you can go in and order this device for next year now, um, turn in your other device, which costs about $500, and pay an additional $299. So if you add all that together, you're looking at a price of about $799 um, list. Uh, that's not necessarily what your out-of-pocket would be Plus, for this device. there's also the, then, the disposable sensors. Yeah, and then you've got the cost of the ongoing cost of the, of the sensors, and the sense those 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 can run hundreds of dollars per month. So you've got some consumables there that you're going to have to pay for too. Now, from an investment standpoint, again, it's kind of that razor blade model. You know, you you sell the 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 system and you get the 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 system in place with the patient, and then you can collect that ongoing annuity stream, if you will, of the, of the sense of revenue. Um, and I think that that's important for investors to be looking at it and saying, okay, this could be a, a good, it's not just a one-time buy. Uh, it could be a good source of additional revenue growth for Medtronic in the future. Uh, time will tell, though, how all those payer relationships get broken out and, um, and how quickly uh, people who may feel like they're already being well-controlled using continuous glucose monitors and those type of things now, uh, how quickly they they decide that they want to switch to it. So to expand upon how an investor should look at this, Medtronic is the world's largest medical device maker. They make so much more than just diabetes products. They have things in cardiac, spine, knee problems. They're they're kind of all over the place in a really good built-up way. What do you think about the stock? Does this make it more of a buy? What, what do you think? I think it's a it's a very attractive market. You know, I mean, the, the estimates are that this is a fourteen billion dollar market for type one diabetes healthcare spend annually. And that, that's um, overall. That's not just for this product. Yeah, right, right. Overall, um, so you know, it's an, it's an attractive market. But Medtronic is a huge company. So is this going to move the needle significantly for the company? No. But will it provide another tailwind that could help it? You know, deliver on its single digit revenue growth? Yes. So, I mean, investors shouldn't be going out and buying this company because they think they're going to all of a sudden see 20 or 30 percent revenue growth. It's just not going to happen. It's not, they're too big and too diversified. Um, so, it's, it's a huge advance for patients, uh, potentially, um, and it's a nice tailwind for investors who might want to go out and own a medical, uh, medical device company like Medtronic. Great. Sounds good. This podcast is brought to you by Pearl Auto, which makes wireless rear view cameras for your car that retrofit around your license plate and it syncs with your smartphone so that you can drive more safely. You can check it out at pearlauto.com fool and get free two-day shipping applied at checkout. I recently got to test out the product and I was actually really impressed with the quality of the image. It's, it's pretty cool. It's very quick and easy to install and it's solar powered, uh, which is super cool. And it'll even warn you when there are obstacles in your way. You can learn more about it at pearlauto.com slash fool. And thanks again to Pearl Auto for supporting our show. So as alluded to in the beginning of the episode, the second half of the show today, we wanted to do a little bit of an update about some recent findings about medical marijuana and maybe touch base since we're almost heading into November uh, about what the election landscape could look like surrounding this issue. 
you know, we've talked about in the past um, kind of the, using the states as, as, as a laboratory for being able to evaluate um, the role that marijuana may play in healthcare and what its impact may be on, you know, state populations and being able to extrapolate that to the national population. I mean, you know, you go back in time, you say, well, you know, things like cigarettes, we didn't really realize all the health um, drawbacks to cigarettes, right, until later on. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess opponents to medical marijuana uh, uh, jumping in with both feet would be saying we don't fully understand all of the impact of approving marijuana and having marijuana use become more uh, mainstream. So let's look at these different uh, states that have already approved medical marijuana and see what kind of outcomes they're getting. And fortunately now we've had enough years go by uh, since the first state started to approve medical marijuana that you can take a look at health data and be able to overlay that in the states that approved medical marijuana and see if you can draw any conclusions. And what I found really interesting is that last month, uh, one study that was done as part of a National Bureau of Economic Research funded uh, grant uh, that came out of um, Johns Hopkins and Temple uh, looked at you know what are the impacts on the elderly as far as workforce participation and what they found is that in the states that passed medical marijuana legislation um, there was a higher uh, percentage of elderly workers seniors older workers that remained in the workforce and those people who did remain in the workforce worked more hours and, and I think that's kind of interesting they also reported that they thought that they are in better health. This is a really interesting study. It, as you mentioned, we have enough data now where you can look at states pre and post legalization and compare them with similar non-legally approved states and compare the trajectories and see what you get. So in this study, they found that people age 50 or older were more likely to be employed in the marijuana legal states. Um, men were more likely to say that they're in very good or excellent health and were reportedly in less pain. That stood out to me as particularly interesting because it was actually just for men. There is another study that showed recently that marijuana provides more pain relief for men than women. They're not really sure why, but that was kind of a head scratcher for me. Yeah, it is. One, this is, again, this is what we're trying to figure out. We're trying to figure out in real world applications, how does medical, mar what, what's the impact of medical marijuana? And it's, it's a holistic look at things. It's not just saying, okay, do I feel better um, because I have less chronic pain? It's, it's, do I feel better and I'm actually able to go out into the workforce and, and contribute to society rather than sitting in my house in pain? Um, you know, one of the other things that came out of this study was that they determined that there's a lot of, um, there's some switching that goes on in states that pass medical marijuana legislation where pe patients are now switching from drugs for say anxiety uh, or, or nausea medications or psychosis medications to medical marijuana treatment. So that's something to keep an eye on too because there's good to that and there's bad to that. The, the good part could be that you know, you're reducing the use of drugs that maybe have more uh, or could expose you to more side effects like opiates, okay, for pain, okay? Well, maybe you would prefer to have medical marijuana if it can control your pain better rather than exposing yourself to the risk of associated with opiates, right? Yeah, but to the play other devil's end, advocate there, it's kind of like a, an unknown versus a known thing to worry about. I mean, if you have a drug that you know for a fact has some side effects, but it has a track record and you, you know more or less what you're getting yourself into, is that better or worse than taking medical marijuana, where 
we don't think that there's any side effects, but it really doesn't have the, the robust long-term studies. It, right. And hopefully we're going to get those over time. Um, you're, you're correct in that, you know, what we've seen so far in placebo-controlled studies has been limited. Um, and when you've tried to, to study it in larger populations involving thousands of patients, um, it's been kind of a toss-up uh, versus placebo. However, what we're seeing here, and I don't know if it's placebo effect, what, what the effect is, what we're seeing here is that people feel good enough where they are transitioning from some of these um, prescription drugs to medical marijuana, and obviously the outcomes are solid enough where they feel like they can return to the workforce. The other, you know, devil's advocate end of this would be, you know, if someone feels better and they discontinue a treatment for a chronic disease, well, medical marijuana, it's treating the symptom, not the cause. So, you know, none of these decisions should be made in a vacuum. They should all be made with the help of a doctor so that you know that you're not causing yourself a long-term harm by discontinuing a treatment that's addressing the cause of your problem rather than the symptom. But that being said, this is still a very intriguing study um, and, and obviously kind of hints at some of the things that we may see um, as far as information coming out of, of all of these approvals that are occurring uh, throughout the nation. Right, and we're looking at a few more potential approvals. So right now, recreational marijuana is legal in a handful of states. Uh, there's four of them, and also Washington, D.C. Five more states could join uh, after November elections. You've got California, Maine, Nevada, Massachusetts, and Arizona. Meanwhile, medical is legal in 25 states, and four more could be joining in November. And those are Montana, North Dakota, Florida, and Arkansas. Going back to the recreation uh, legalization, I think California, to me at least, is the most interesting of those five that could potentially be joining the list of fully recreational legal states um, with their Prop 64. Yeah, they were there at the forefront of the of the of adopting medical marijuana legisl legislation. Um, uh, they have not yet approved, obviously, recreational. A lot of people think this will be the year that they do it. Uh, if if it's approved, I mean, California's already got a very robust infrastructure. They've got, I think it's hundreds, hundreds of dispensaries already set up because of the medical marijuana legislation that passed years and years and years ago. Um, and they're also one of the largest uh, production centers for marijuana in the United States. Uh, I mean, as a standalone economy, they're huge. So when you look at the scale that we're talking about here, it's enormous. Supposedly, uh, the passage of this bill could lead to $1 billion a year in tax revenue. Yeah, and honestly, that might be conservative. I mean, we're already seeing like we're seeing very big numbers coming out of places like Colorado. Um, it, it remains to be seen how this plays out, but it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't shock me if down the road the peak number was a lot higher than that. You know, if you, if you look at the five states considering on the recreational front, Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada, um, I think California's probably got the best shot. Maine, maybe, Arizona, eh, Massachusetts, and eh, Nevada, maybe. Um, yeah, if you're looking at latest approval percentages, you've got California at 60%, Nevada's 57%, Maine, Massachusetts are both 53%, and Arizona's at 50% in favor of approval. Right. And uh, you also have to look at the, um, the, the percentage conviction opposed. Um, and when you get a place like Massachusetts, where you've got that number around 40%, that's pretty high right. compared the, the to some of these the other states where it's in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, when you look at the medical legalization side of things, uh, which which states stand out to you there? Well, we've got 25 states already. Um, so, again, like you mentioned, we got Florida, 
uh, Arkansas, Montana, and North Dakota all considering various medical marijuana um, things on their ballots. Florida is the biggie, without a doubt. I mean, it's the largest population. Uh, it's got a huge population of seniors who would have chronic conditions that would benefit from medical marijuana conceivably. Um, in 2014, the there was a vote unfortunately did not pass. In in Florida, you have to change the Constitution, um, and you need a 60% vote to do that. So it's not just a majority, simple majority. you got to get over 60%. Right, they fell shy in- by about 2, 2% uh, in 2014. But most of the studies out right now and polls right now uh, are pegging at way north of 60%. So I, I think that Florida has a very good shot of getting medical marijuana on the, on, on, on the books this year. Right. And as more and more states get added to this list, hopefully we will continue to get more detailed studies and a longer term profile for how exactly marijuana works. So, uh, Todd, thank you so much, as always, for your thoughts today. Folks, thanks for listening. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.